Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello. Just before we start this week's episode of Mid-Atlantic, it's only right and proper for me to big myself up, to puff out my chest and to tell you that I'm organising a conference called Intelligent Speech, which will happen on Saturday, June the 29th from 7am to 7pm at the Centre for Social Innovation in Manhattan in New York. It's just a great excuse for me to get together some of the most revered podcasters, podcasters who I absolutely adore their work. So Mike Duncan from the History of Rome and Revolutions, yes, that Mike Duncan will be there. David Crowther from the History of England, Kevin Stroud from the History of English, amongst a whole load of others will be there. Tickets are priced at $80, and to get your ticket, go to intelligentspeechconference.com. That's intelligentspeechconference.com, and go and purchase one today. Now, in terms of me being somewhat of a a rah-rah salesman, here is a little ad which I prepared before to whet your appetite for the great goings-on that will be had on June 29th. Welcome to the history of Rome. You too, my child. Hello everyone and welcome to the history of England. When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year with his fat bottom boats and his grand army, he was told by someone there are bitter weeds in England. Welcome to the History of English Podcast. Mike Duncan of the History of Rome and Revolutions, David Crowther of the History of England, and Kevin Stroud of the History of English will all be in the same place at the same time at a day devoted to thought-provoking podcast infotainment. On June 29, from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m., the Agora Podcast Network will be presenting the Intelligent Speech Conference in New York City. In addition to Mike Duncan, David Crowther and Kevin Stroud, some of your favorite Agora Podcast Network hosts will also be there, including Royfield Brown of Mid-Atlantic, 10 American Presidents and How Jamaica Conquered the World, Eric Fogg of Reconsider, Steve Guerra of The History of the Papacy Podcast, 
Claude Myron Guza of the Cannonball Podcast, Aziz Aldori of the History of Westeros Podcast, Raven of Tiny Vampires, and Benjamin Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia. With all these amazingly talented individuals, you may be worried that there are too many for one day, but there will be three conference rooms featuring panels, talks, and laser tag. Okay, there will not be any laser tag, but definitely a full day of panels and talks from a dozen of the best podcasters on the planet. You can get tickets to the Intelligent Speech Conference by going to intelligentspeechconference.com. Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud, live and in person. Simply go to intelligentspeechconference.com. Lastly, if you're a long-time listener to Mid-Atlantic, you'll know that we do actually have a presence on Twitter and even a Facebook page. And I put just about no effort into our social media presence. I'm going to write that situation. We have a new sponsor of the show. It's a company called Flick. And basically what they have is a chat room, a chat group. Simply go onto the show notes and you'll see a link download that onto your mobile phone and it's just all dedicated to mid-atlantic chat what i'm going to do in the next month or so is to seed that with various topics things that are happening on both sides of the atlantic and i need you to join in with that conversation it's a great and immediate way to chat to other people and to get their thoughts and opinions but it's away from facebook and away from twitter i have done this uh, for some of my other podcasts for dumpty dum in particular and people absolutely love it so go into the show notes the link is there for the flick app you can go on there quite simply as soon as you hit that link you will have signed up to the group and have fun talk to each other pose questions create new threads etc and answer questions about each respective countries and also about its politics so in the show notes go do that uh, celebrate and support our new sponsor flick and now it's on with the show This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic and the Primarily 2020 podcast, the shows where I, Royful Brown and Karen Robinson look at the political news from both sides of the Atlantic as we are expats from the other side of the ocean. Um, well, for people that don't know, I'm Royfield and I'm sat in the Bay Area, which is basically San Francisco under, I was going to say a cloudless sky, but that, that's changed since I wrote this intro. It's somewhat of a cloudy sky, it feels very British, which is probably apt considering we're talking about similarities between, or maybe the differences between our two countries. Karin, what's the weather like where you are today? Well, it's literally just started raining, Royfield, so I think uh, I think we are on brand for London. 
So, <laughs> so I'm Karen Robinson, and I am the host of the Primarily 2020 podcast. I am an American expat living in London and um, sitting in London where it is dark and night, as opposed to uh, where Royfield is, where it's, I think, about 1230 in the afternoon. So for all that unites us, there are still <laughs> time zones and weather that divides us. And I'm Karen Robinson. I am the host of the Primarily 2020 podcast um, based here in London. It's the podcast where we talk about the politics, personalities and policies of the US Democratic primary. I am a political activist, communications strategist and uh, over keen Democrat who's been living here in London for nearly 20 years, but still has one foot over the other side of the pond, uh, looking very closely at the politics of my beloved homeland. And I think uh, the purpose of today is to, as we say, share share all the things that, that Royfield and I have in common and the things that we've uh, that we've learned about our, our kind of opposite and complementary experience as, as expats. And I think a lot of the themes of today's podcast is kind of what was surprising about the politics of our host countries as compared to our home countries. Royfield, shall I kick us off by uh, interrogating you on that question? Absolutely. Go. So... And I know you've been sort of, you're back and forth quite a bit. You go from San Francisco mm-hmm. to London um, and back and forth. But when you first came to live in the United States, I'm just curious, what did you expect when you got there? Um, and what was it, what was different than what you thought? First off, I get so many people that say to me on both sides of the Atlantic, why am I in America now? Of all the times to come to America, um, as somebody who um, doesn't come wrapped up white skin, why would I want to come here right now? So first off, I came um, in 2014 in the middle of the Obama years, so to speak. And also, <laughs> But also, I clarify to people and I say, I'm in California, I'm not in America. Now, that's partly tongue-in-cheek, but it's not completely tongue-in-cheek. I made a very conscious decision to move to to come to the Bay Area, which is probably one of the most liberal and progressive places on on planet Earth. Definitely one of the most liberal and progressive places in America. And I'm not in the Midwest. There is something about the energy uh, of this place, which I utterly love. Now, what surprised me initially was, even though I knew it was someone which had liberal politics and was going to be at least outwardly open to people who are different i was surprised how progressive this bit of america was and actually if there's one thing that underlines my view of america and american politics is actually how liberal america actually is in all and i'm talking about the middle of america yeah when you actually take off labels from questions that you pose to people most Americans are in favour of universal health care. But there is a difference between the Fox News narrative of what is an American and actually what Americans believe on the ground. Yes, lots of Americans believe that abortion should not be sanctioned by the government. Lots of Americans believe in capital punishment. Yes, there are differences between Americans and Brits in that regard. But actually, most Americans, whether they are red or blue, Democrat or Republican, think that the country is skewed on, on behalf of the rich. Most Americans believe, as I said, in universal health care. 
believe that student debt is way too high, too expensive to go to college, and believe that something fundamentally is broken for working class and middle class Americans. Can I ask you about that then? Because I mm-hmm. think I think you're right, and actually the polling data bears that out. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty. It's the common democratic lament <laughs> when Democrats get together and sit on the ground and weep sad sad tears about why we don't win more elections more consistently. We always say, but the polling all says that they support our policies. They agree with us on so much. Why aren't the people who agree with us voting for us? But I think that's the crux of the issue. I'm just curious. In your travels around the states and of your experience of the country with with fresh eyes, mm-hmm. do you think it's an identity question or a policy question? It's absolutely an identity question. Hence, I said at the start, if you take off the labels of the questions that you're asking people, you actually get the, the great unanimity that what a lot of the right and actually the left oh, yeah. are, are being fed is... Your identity, your intersectionality means that others don't understand you and or that others are different and or that others are against you. And you take those labels off and there isn't that much. No, there are things that divide Americans. don't, Don't get me wrong. But there is a lump of Americans kind of in the middle, which are surprising from a British perspective, always believing that American politics skews from a British and a European perspective as centre to right, that actually it's kind of centre to mildly left, taken as a whole. I I think you're right. And there is a tradition. So people talk about the Midwest a lot. And for good Mm -hmm. reason, it's it's powerful and important from a political point of view. There's a tradition that I think doesn't get talked about much, especially overseas, of prairie populism, um, Mm -hmm. a sort of progressivism that comes out of the working people of the the Midwest across the country and early labor movements and uh, innovation in kind of uh, social socialization of various different institutions has come out of a, a longstanding political tradition in that part of the country, which still exists. And it's one of the reasons why you saw, for example, in Wisconsin, a big kind of resurgence of the labor movement under Scott Walker as, as governor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was because they, they had some roots there. There was, there was something to build on. It didn't just spring up from scratch. And I think it's probably underestimated as a political force. But I also think also Democrats get a little complacent about it because identity is also really powerful and really strong. And identity has become the thing that divides us the most. And identity is is such a hard thing to pin down because you can sit that, sit across from somebody and agree with them about everything. And they still can really loathe you because they see you as on the other side of something. It's much more powerful than in some ways than than what we actually think and believe about politics. I've I've been really struck by listening to people like Ben Shapiro. I dip into his podcast, Mm -hmm. let's say two, three times a week, but I do it to hear what the other side is thinking. And he did an interview with Tucker Carlson some months ago. And I, I was totally shocked. Tucker Carlson actually said, I believe with Bernie Sanders, like 80%. And he he railed against the shareholder society that we have, railed against big money in politics. And I just presume that everybody that turned up on Fox News wouldn't say such a thing. Good evening. Welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Bernie Sanders is running for president again. Not that he ever really stopped. Pull up Sanders' first presidential announcement speech. It was May 26th, 2015 in Burlington, Vermont. 
Virtually all of the themes in Sanders' announcement speech, his first one, are what in the end got Donald Trump elected president. The collapse of the middle class, the crushing cost of health care and student loans, the pointlessness of perpetual war in the Middle East, the distorting effect of Washington lobbyists and donors, the swamp, the dangers of corporate power, the need for better jobs and higher wages for Americans, the generational disaster that is our trade policy. It's all there, everything but build a wall. Sanders is often described as a 1970s-era socialist, and that's basically true. He honeymooned in the Soviet Union. But if you listen carefully, what Bernie Sanders was really selling in the last campaign was not Marxism. It was economic populism, and an awful lot of people agreed with it. Many of them wound up voting for Donald Trump in the general election. But if you watch Tucker Carlson's show, he's turned it Mm -hmm. over into a forum for open white nationalists with a populist strand. So that's the thing. There's this, there's this specific identity that he's, that he's touching on there, which does agree with Bernie Sanders about 80%. And the other 20% is just flat out racist. Of course, he would not say it's racist. He would say that this is uh, that we need to be cohesive as Americans. We need to build an American identity, especially for people who are coming in. They need to sign up to this view of America and Americana. You and I might say, well, this is at best a 1950s view of what um, America was, if it ever was that. And that doesn't um, admit various other types of Americans to be American uh, with his view. But from where I'm sitting, it sounds pretty racist. But to give him his due, he wouldn't say that it's such Now, my question to you is, you're sat in Britain. If you've been there for 20 years... You sat through the optimism of the early Blair years called Britannia and all of that. Mm -hmm. You've seen the wave of Eastern European migration come in. Yep. Which has then had this, seen the subsequent rise of UKIP and now now the Brexit party. Um, What does being British mean to you living through the last 20 years of British political turmoil considering that we now have this existential crisis about the British place in the world? Great question. Well, I'm going to start by answering that question in sort of the same way that you answered my question, which is, I don't live in Britain. I live in London. (laughs) And um, so London, first of all, is a fantastic city. It's just a great place to live. And it's a great place. If you, like me, are someone who believes in multiculturalism and the idea that we can come from any part of the world and find common ground and that is kind of excited about engaging with other cultures. And if, like me, you also have a fondness for British culture, which I've always had, London is basically the the perfect place to live, right? So I think for many years watching, as you say, all of these political developments and cultural developments take place, I think I was complacent about the bubble I was living in and, and didn't really have my eyes open to it in a real way, like like many people until June 23rd of 2016, when the, the referendum to leave the European Union was passed. It, that was a very personal thing for me, because I lived in, at the time in Britain as a, a, not as a European Union citizen, but under European Union treaty rights. Mm-hmm. So my personal situation was my husband is German. And for the many years that we'd lived here, we'd always lived here on, on his passport, because as a European Union citizen, he could freely come and go. We got married because we, we were able to live together, we were able to get married, raise our raise my daughter. All of it was only possible because the European Union existed. And so for me, it felt like, and still feels to this day, like 
I see the opportunity that was given to us and I see it taken away from from my daughter and from the next generation. And I just can't help but feel it's a diminishment. It's a lessening of Britain. I, I, I do feel that, that Britain is, is choosing decline. But that's my opinion based on my own personal experience. It's clear to me, as I say, the bubble, the bubble burst. And it's clear to me that that's a very different experience than what people outside of London have been having. Um, and it doesn't really matter whether I think that's true or not. It feels true to them. It feels like instead of an opportunity, Europe is a threat. So all of these years when I was kind of, as you say, happily enjoying the Blair years and, uh, you know, with some pretty big downsides as well as upsides. But I always think back to the, the London Olympics of 2012. I look back on it and it's extraordinary to me that that was so recent when my view of, of the country is so deeply transformed from that moment. Because London 2012 for me was the vindication of everything I believed about the politics and culture of Britain. Look at this amazing modern place where you can come from anywhere in the world. And there was a mythology that came up around it. <laughs> Londoners were polite and friendly and would talk to you on the tube for the first time ever. And it sort of felt like, wow, this is this is the country we can be. This is the world we can be. Um, and then it's been, uh, you know, and, and, and then it's changed. <laughs> so, um, but I think, yeah, I, I think British politics right now is every bit as broken and ugly as, as American politics is, if not worse, because. Worse. Well, I think here's my thing. I, so this is an argument I have with a lot of British friends of mine. Um, so I will always say Trump is worse and they'll say, no, Brexit is worse. No, Trump is worse. Brexit is worse. But their argument, which I have some sympathy for, is two things. First of all, Brexit is forever. Trump is for however long he lasts. Could be gone next week. Mm. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be gone in 2020. Worst case scenario, he'll be gone four years after that. But Brexit is fundamentally reshaping the British constitution if it goes through forever. So that's one thing. But the second thing is, and this is kind of more my argument, at least in America, we have one political party and one political philosophy that is unified and sane. And I think in Britain, it feels like everything's fractured. Labor is just as, just as divided as, as the conservatives are. Got the rise of so many new parties. The whole political consensus of the past 50 to 70 years is just gone. The Brexit party, which didn't exist two months ago, they have no policies except let's leave Brexit, let's leave Britain with no deal. It feels like a sea change very rapidly. What do you think? My thoughts are exactly the same as yours. Initially, people say to me, oh my God, Trump is the worst thing ever. And my answer gets framed exactly the way that you do. Uh, that actually, no, Brexit is worse because it's supposedly going to be forever if we ever actually finally leave. Whereas Trump's just for a finite amount of time. However, what I haven't done is really properly analyse the schisms that are going on in the Labour Party because I wasn't for Corbyn. Then I thought, no, this is good, that the left actually have somebody in charge. And then we have the wrong left-leading person in charge, somebody who has a certain level of charisma but only to the base, has lost some elements of the centre-right. And with the issue of the day, which is, Brexit and Britain's position, not just in Europe, but in the world, is on the wrong side of history. Yeah, it's so ridiculous. It's ridiculous, it's old-fashioned, and it's just plain wrong, considering 
that the one institution which has enshrined workers' rights in the last 40 years in the UK has actually been the EU. Mm-hmm. You would think on that cause alone, he would be much more favourably disposed towards it. In a way, what we're living through right now is only made possible because of the EU and wider economic and political integration because we don't fight each other in Europe anymore in big, bloody battles and wars. And so we've become incredibly complacent and we've forgotten that actually Winston Churchill was all for European political integration because he'd lived through not one but two world wars caused by Europe. Mm-hmm. And it's ironic that these Brexiteers talk about Churchill all the time. And actually, you go listen to his speeches at the end of the Second World War, and he is crying out for the United States of Europe. He is. You know, he's saying that we cannot do this again. At The Hague are gathered 800 delegates representing 23 European nations. Men and women of all walks of life, they, like France's wartime premier Edward de Ladier, have come to seek the first United States of Europe. The Dutch royal couple, welcoming Mrs. Churchill and Antony Eden, greet the delegates who include Leslie Hoare Belisha. Calling a Europe, desperately seeking a sign of hope amid a mass of war talk, Winston Churchill says, This is not a movement of parties, but a movement of people. It must be all for all. Europe can only be united by the heartfelt wish and vehement expression of the great majority of all the peoples in all the parties, in all the freedom-loving countries, no matter where they dwell or how they vote. We cannot aim at anything less than the union of Europe as a whole. And we look forward with confidence to the day when that union will be achieved. I think it's interesting you bring up the Second World War. Can I just hit you with a hypothesis that I have? My theory, Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. not a coincidence that we're seeing these things happen. The rise of Trump, the rise of far-right nationalists in other countries around the world, um, and, and Brexit. At around the time, most of the generation that lived through the Second World War is dying off. I, I, you know what, I think you're right. And, and it's interesting that when that first referendum, which was 1975, was posed to the British people, that the, the history of the Second World War was still a real one. People lived through it and were still active and could remember. So they understood the wider project that this is to safeguard against the cataclysm of war. And yes, there are people... Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's, what, a year or so older than me, but he feels like he's completely a, a complete another generation, that ha- didn't live through the Second World War, but have this rose-tinted view of it. And in a way, and I'm going to jump, because I realise I went off on a little bit of a mansplaining rant there, as opposed to actually answering your question, which is the fragmentation of British politics, that I've always said, just like you said, that you don't live in Britain, you live in London. And I'll be even more specific. I, When I moved down to London in 1995, I realised very quickly that there were three or four Englands, and I'm not talking about Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland. I'm talking about the one constituent part of the United Kingdom that I know, England. 
There is London, which just happens to be in a place called England. And really, the London of popular myth is zones three into one of London. You get to zone six of London, and that's England. But London is just somewhere else. It just happens to be in England. Then there is metropolitan England. Birmingham's, Manchester, Leeds. Those places, they share a commonality that there are ethnic minorities between, let's say in Birmingham might be 30%, down to Manchester it might be about 5%. Indian corner shops, curry houses, things like that. Uh, Large working class pools of white people, etc. And then there is um, rural bits of England. Now, what I hadn't fi- what I hadn't factored in was the eastern seaboard, the depressed side, these these economically depressed bits of England, which are post-industrial and aren't uh, bathed in the glow of uh, of, of sunlight at the end end of um, a hot sunny day. So you're talking about uh, your Grimsby's, uh, your South Ends, and then your Stokes, and I believe that we're going through a massive realignment of British politics. And even though it's turbulent and it's horrible right now, it's actually for the good. That what the rise of Trump and Brexit has done to nice, well-meaning liberals like us is to shake us out of our complacency. I agree with to the extent that the nice li- nice liberals like ourselves are being shaken out of our complacency. My worry is, are there enough of us to actually win <laughs> in the end? Again, I continue to discover that I'm more complacent um, about Brexit than I than than I expect that I am. I keep thinking that at some point a durable majority for Remain will will pop up, right? But in these European elections, we're not seeing that. We're seeing it's pretty much fifty fifty. If you add up all the like the kind of hodgepodge of parties that are strong Brexit and the kind of hodgepodge of parties that are strong Remain, it's pretty much even. And actually, they, they, they still have the advantage. Uh, and, what, and what they have is this, whether we like to admit it or not, a somewhat charismatic person who can just ram home one message and his message does actually chime with a whole load of people that actually will be economically disadvantaged by Brexit. Because to come back to the American analogy, it's not about the policies. It's about your identity and what you identify as. Classically, us people of the left have got somewhat kind of confused. And we think, well, if you're working class, you must believe X and Y and Z. But there always has been on both sides of the Atlantic, whether it's the rural, poor, working class, classically in West Virginia, or the East End, Tory voting working class in London that always have been these constituents of people of which, who said my identity as a white person or my identity as something else trumps pun no not pun intended, intended. <laughs> exactly is superior to my presumed economic position I think that's uh, that's a great point and and as somebody who's been as you know, on my podcast, I spend a lot of time thinking about the the democratic primary. Mm-hmm. And we have different models of kind of working class populism at play. So there's the Bernie Sanders model of kind of working class populism, which I previously to his 2018, uh, 2016 primary would not have thought it was a sizable 
um, constituency. I'm actually kind of pleased to discover that it is. You know, it's great that democratic socialism is a thing that we can actually talk about in America. There's a big generational shift there. Then you've got. But, but just on that, yeah. Though, and I don't want to trip up your point completely. No go. It does make me. La- it makes me laugh how Americans, at least pundits in the media have no understanding what democratic socialism is it veers from this is communism this is just something weird and wonderful which is an oxymoron and i say to americans all the time that if i am um if i'm a democratic socialist fundamentally i'm a capitalist you know i'm you're not tearing down the system at all what you are what you are saying is that there are certain key industries that need to be run by the state. And, and I say to Americans all the time, you people have, believe in a large doses of socialism. They say, what do you mean? I says, your school system. It might be broken, but who? But everybody can universally go to school. That is socialist. So what, you, so, so what you're talking about is, is a mixed economy. What you get from American media and from people's instinctive position on democratic socialism is this is communism. You want to take you. You want to take you know shoot the rich, take take their money. Hundred percent. And actually, that's kind of where I wanted to go with this. But so let me talk a little bit about when I came to Britain. One of mm. the things that I learned about British politics was the the possibility of socialism that was not Soviet era iron curtain russian style socialism mm-hmm. the, the the mere existence of what, what i now understand of as democratic socialism to a young american girl even coming from a wildly liberal state like massachusetts where i grew up i literally had never encountered the concept of socialism in a democratic society it was just something i'd never experienced and i think i was a unusually politically engaged and well-informed young person. It's just not a thing in the States, or at least it wasn't during that time in my life. I feel like we've had a big change in in young people's understanding of socialism. And I think they've been exposed to the concept in ways that I wasn't. But I also think things have gotten so much worse for young people since mm. I was a young person that I think people are open to options that so people are open to options that previously they would have just discounted. And I also think, similar to how I was talking before about the lived experience of the First World War, of uh, Second World War, is has disappeared. The lived experience of Soviet-style socialism, it, it does not exist for these young people. They don't mm. have the boogeyman. For my generation, was you know it was all about the Cold War and it was all about totalitarianism and authoritarianism and scary, scary Russian intervention, which is still a thing, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I think the young people coming up today, they've never, they've never been taught to fear. You know, even in the eighties, we were taught to fear. So socialism as this big, scary boogeyman, they, they came up in an age when kind of most socialism that exists in their world is, is so is Scandinavian style socialism. And, you know, they look to that and they, they see the opportunity for that. And meanwhile, their lives are getting harder. It's harder for that generation to get jobs. It's through two to three times more expensive for them to uh, to pay for university education. Um, they're pretty likely to get shot in school. I mean, that's a thing that apparently now mm. happens on a regular basis. So you can't really blame them for saying, actually, let's look to some better solutions to these problems. So yeah, so I guess in America, it feels like the opportunity exists now for a sea change of the type that I 
aspire to. Um, as you say, that, that, that there will be a political realignment, but I feel like generationally it's moving in a really good direction. I'm not sure I see the same thing for the UK. Let me answer a point about the US first before I come on, on to the UK. So I think you, you raise a, a lot of really, really good points there. And that fundamentally, there are Americans of a certain age, let's say my age and above, so let's say 50 and, and above, remember the Cold War and are hemmed in by it, but also can remember when America was not only the only real economic powerhouse in the world before the rise of Japan in, let's say, in, in, in the 80s, but also that optimism, that sense of isolation, that America is the shining light on the hill. There's all this kind of stuff. So Americans have never felt, Americans of a certain age have never felt that they needed to look outside of American borders for any solutions. And this is something which I just find utterly amazing. Because of the, the, the sheer size of America, I do understand why the world doesn't exist outside of American borders. I, I do get it, but it's incredibly frustrating. And then there are, as I said, these historical and economic reasons. You look at the healthcare debate in this country. Just Everybody look at Canada. else has solved it. <laughs> exactly. You know, look at Canada. Before, before you go, well, let's look at, uh, you know, Scandinavia. Because you could argue that this is a, a, you know, a different culture, a different set of cultural values and blah, blah, blah. Look at Canada. But Americans are of a certain age anyway, are incapable and have a massive blind spot to the rest of the world in terms of solutions to problems. They believe that only America can come up with solutions which work for America and that anything which smacks of government is wrong, completely forgetting that, that, that the VA is socialism, whichever, whichever way you want to talk about it, completely forgetting, because it's seen as a right, that school education is socialist, left, right and centre. Right? These are the things that are taken as a given. And, and purely, and I'll just throw in, as somebody who loves sport, not sports, that <laughs> the construct of American sport in terms of draft picks for the worst performing teams is so socialist... You know, you can sit down with any baseball cap, uh, Coors Light drinking, Budweiser drinking American and say, you do know that your whole sporting system is socialist. And they'll turn around <laughs> to you and say, I hadn't thought about it, but you're completely right. So I had, I had never thought of the draft as being a from each according to his ability to each according to his need system. But you're not wrong. <laughs> but actually the way the sport is actually structured in, in this country is incredibly egalitarian. You know, we don't want teams to run away and have success the way that Manchester United had 20 years worth of success in Europe. There's a salary cap. There's a whole manner of things which are anti-capitalist on one of these key totems of American society. Again, but let me, but, let me but, come back to that. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the future for British young people. Because mm -hmm. what I'm wondering is, as you alluded to, there was this moment of real excitement and enthusiasm when Jeremy Corbyn came into power as the Labour mm -hmm. leader. Um, young people, for our American listeners, young people disproportionately, overwhelmingly voted to remain. Corbyn has not been taking that position. I feel like there's some disillusionment from young people. And I'm wondering if you have a sense of where they're going to go. What's going to what's going to happen next? Where is the future for young political activists? 
We absolutely don't know because nobody saw the rise of Corbyn before Corbyn. When, when we write the history books, you know, with 2020 hindsight, you can say, well, of course, because of political status or disillusionment, et cetera, et cetera. But no one was predicting Corbyn and Corbyn came as an accident of the, the quirk of the, uh, the election mores of, of the Labour Party. Considering how different the different bits of England are, and again, I, I'm going to say England here because I'm not going to speak for Scotland and Wales, it does mirror massively elements of the US. If I'm surprised about one thing being here is actually how culturally different regions of the United States actually are from each other. Yes, I had an idea that there were big cities in America like New York and Los Angeles, etc. And you have an idea that there is the South. But I didn't know until I really got into the weeds of American culture and politics that there is West Virginia and then there is the uh, conservative Midwest and then there are progressive bits of the Midwest, that there are shades and nuance and there are conservative bits of California. There is this nuance. Coming back onto the UK, what Nigel Farage has managed to do and by far is the most influential politician of the last 20 years period full stop no argument right that what this has potentially opened up for young people is to realize in a very american sense that there are new coalitions of english people whether it is the young from the disillusioned post-industrial towns which haven't had an economic bounce your Stokes your your Grimsby's etc realising that the post-war economic treaties that our parents lived through that they could do a 9 to 5 job and that was enough to support them in not only in their working life but in their retirement that that is gone Mm. when we have a politician that can say that and successfully speak to a young white male in Stoke, but also 35-year-old black woman in South London, then I think that our realignment of British politics will be something which at least us on the left are comfortable with, as opposed to being scared of right-wing populism. The one thing that I think us on the left have to realise, and this has got nothing to do with the young per se, is that right-wing populist politics is comforting because the world is complicated. And it's really nice to have simple solutions to complex problems. They're wrong solutions, but you can clearly put on the side of the bus, leave means leave, as opposed to let's have a little bit more of the same and let's have 2% more to these Mm. people over here in X, X and Y and Z. So when we have that politician who can distill the experience of not a young person in London but a young person in Stoke but combine it with let's say that black 35 year old nurse social worker in in, in, in central London then I think we truly have a, a, a realignment of politics in, in, in the United Kingdom and the one other thing good thing I would say is that considering we're so looking at looking into a fracturing of the Conservative Party this is a massive opportunity for the left. You mentioned Nigel Farage and, um, yeah, let's just pause and 
consider the hideousness of Nigel Farage for a second. Um, but Nigel Farage is not just Trump-like. He he actually is personally close to Trump. And his whole sphere of influence, including lots of things like both are accused of having taken money from Russian sources of finance, you know, they're, they're close to some of the same people. They actually know each other pretty well. I, we talk about these things a lot of times as if they're kind of separate movements. But actually, if you look globally, it feels like Steve Bannon, for example, he pops his head up in a lot of places around the world. Um, Steve Bannon, who was Trump's campaign manager for a while and was um, the, uh, the, the editor of Breitbart, um, a, a far-right um, website and news source. If you're interested, what I'd like to do is set up something and we'll, I'll fund it somehow that I think, and I think you're the perfect guy. We help knit together this populist nationalist movement throughout the world. Dutarte, you know, and, and we get Orban and, and even think, and we're somehow some sort of convening authority for conferences and stuff like that so we can get okay. ideas out there. I mean, do you think that's a, do you think that's a worthwhile thing? Yeah, or think, it's, nobody's got it. Nobody's uh, doing it right now. It's not being done. The reason we're going to beat Corbyn and Sanders is they're not prepared to take on the powers that be. We're fire breathers. I mean, we're taking on the yeah, establishment every day. Uh, You've taken on the Tory party. Yeah, I'm taking on the yeah, Republican party. Yeah. They don't have that. And that's why we can steal a march in them. And, and the reason they don't, they don't want to do it, it's immigration. Yes. It's a global revolt. It's a zeitgeist. We're on the right side of history. And the thing that's missing is, that's what I'm really trying to put together now, is the ideas. The, the ideas have to come in more sharp focus. The economic ideas, the political ideas. You've also moved, Stephen, to a different place. Yeah. The minute you stood up on that stage in Alabama, you became a different figure. Yeah. You're in a different place now. You're not just fixing stuff and operating behind the scenes and making it happen, you're now the face of it. It's one group of people, one group of far-right populists um, spreading, you know, and and Bannon pops up in Hungary. Russia's got its finger all over the place. I have this weird thing because I'm very much not a conspiracy theorist, but I also think you have to face reality. (laughs) And so ever since the, during the whole of the Trump era, including when he was running for election back in 2016, I kept going, um, if I speak the truth that I am seeing based on the evidence before my eyes, I sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist. And I'm not used to that because I'm naturally quite kind of cynical about these things. But even back in 2016, I, I was I was watching the Republican convention. And Trump was a pretty hands-off um, candidate. Normally, the, so I know enough about American politics to know that normally what happens is the candidate is nominated into the party, and then they kind of take over the party. They come in, and the most important thing they do is they set, they, they, they appoint people, and they kind of take over the party infrastructure. But one of the things they do is they usually intervene very deeply in the platform. Right. So the platform policy that takes place at conventions um, is typically subsumed to whatever the platform of the candidate running for office was, because they now have to the party is now the candidate, like for the purposes of that election. Trump did not 
do much with the platform. He was extremely unusual in kind of just letting the platform committee and the Republican convention do what it wanted to do. And nobody cares about this stuff. I mean, it's all very inside baseball stuff, as we say. Nobody's interested in it. So people didn't really pay much attention. But there was only one thing, one change that um, Trump's people, Paul Manafort specifically, went into the platform committee and intervened to make one policy change. Do you know what it was? Maginsky act on him say was it that you're in the right territory it was to weaken the language that condemned the russian incursion into ukraine ah and i saw this happening and i was like i don't i don't know how to express how crazy this looks to me i i people don't seem to be nearly as upset about this as i am because i don't think it's an important thing in and itself like the platform's not that important but the mm. signal that it sent to me was like the symbolism what yeah. is going on here you know because already at that time people were talking about trump was praising putin a lot and i just thought what is happening and everything since then has just made it worse <laughs> but but let's look at this from from, from another perspective number one a conventional answer to, to what you're saying is that Trump is a very disinterested politician, if you can even call him a politician, considering he's a president of the United States. He didn't expect to win. He didn't have the campaign infrastructure to win um, the, the, the general election, let alone the Republican election. So he didn't and he didn't have the ideologues to then take control of the party's agenda in the way that which you've actually said. But viewed this from another way, um, the Labour Party um, has its conference every year. And you have the NEC, you have the ballots of the members, etc. And the will of Labour Party activists is being frustrated by Corbyn vis-a-vis Europe. Hmm. And if there is anything, and then to bring this back to Farage, which is where you initially brought the, brought this conversation in... To me, Farage is very different from Trump. Farage believes in what he says. He's a man of conviction. Trump doesn't believe in anything other than Trump. So I will, I will give Nigel Farage more props in that regard. This man has been banging the drum of getting us out of Europe for 20, 30 years, and he believes it. Though, yes, ideologically, he has found common cause with this, I would say, bullshit notion that he is an outsider and part of the marginalised, so to speak. And it's all those people up there, the, the liberal elite. He kind of crystallised that before Trump did. But d- just, just to finish the point, because I can hear you go, <gasps> you, want, you want to come, come in, <laughs> is to say that what Nigel Farage has done is to completely subvert British politics and to bring it down fundamentally to very easy sloganeering which is ultimately really dangerous, but it teaches us a lesson, us people that believe that there are lots of lots of grey in the world. There is nuance, and you know you can say one thing to one person, they can understand something different from what you said. You need to explain it again and say, well, I do appreciate that you, your lived experience is somewhat a little bit different from mine, but what I meant was this and next one. Those people cut through all of that. Hmm. And and maybe what we're living we're living through is a period whereby party politics and politics created by the members, by the base, by the party to connect Farage with the Republican convention and with the frustration 
of Labour Party activists with Corbyn vis-a-vis Europe that could agree with him on everything else is to say that we're kind of in this weird period where it is strongman politics, and I say that word, those words advisedly, but where if you can just crystallise around one position to hell with party conventions, to hell with everything else, you can actually ignore policy. It's issues. It's not policy, it's issues. And that's what the right has successfully done in the States, what Trump has done. It's not about policies per se, it's issues. It's these people are kneeling at the Super Bowl. They're anti-American. These people want to um, straighten our bananas. We need to get out of the EU. And, and, and in this way, Corbyn does line up a little bit with the Brexit party. There is no party, is there? It's not Go. a political party. It's a limited liability company. That's, a, that's its organizational structure. So, mm. which but to me is weird. I'm not sure why that's possible. Why can you run? Anyway, but never mind. Um, but yeah, I think there, there are two things I want to say. Mm-hmm. I definitely want to come back about why Nigel Farage is a con artist. So let's park that for one second. The bigger point that you make um, about the complexity of life is absolutely the source of so many of the problems that we're seeing today. Um, and the kind of, I almost feel like there are, we are, everything in our world is conspiring to make, and I'm talking about me here. I'm not talking about the far right or even the the right or the left. I'm talking about as a human being, mm-hmm. it's so tempting and so easy to just get really angry <laughs> and not dig too deep. I spend too much time on Twitter, and it's one of the things I'm trying to That's work on. That's where you're going wrong. That's where myself. you're going wrong, yeah. you know. Not a good thing, but so does the president. So it gives me a window into his life, right? Mm-hmm. And on Twitter, nothing is ever nuanced or complicated. Everything is always the worst thing that ever happened or the best thing you could imagine. And um, I'm trying to really force myself, and it's an intellectual exercise to go, okay, I've and I've got an initial reaction of anger. Let me find out more about that. Let's Let's look at the whole thing. Let's watch the whole tape. Let's read the whole article. Let's go away and think about this. I'm trying to do that, and I'm trying to do – less and less wean myself off of a diet of, of, of outrage and frustration, partly for my own mental health, um, because um, it is a difficult time to be an American in this world and to be a British person in this world, which I'm now both. But I feel like that, that writ large, if you, expl- if you explode that out to the whole of the general population, that's politics. That's that's everything. That explains the whole thing, the whole thing about why the world is the way it is. And I don't know that there is there isn't an easy way back because it's not like there was ever a glorious age of everybody sitting down and considering political complexity, right? Um, but we used to live in a world where connection at a human level was more necessary. We would talk to each other more. There's so many studies about this. Um where you get people who are apparently left and right and you put them in a room and they come out with consensus. You know, these studies have been done in the US, the UK, absolutely everywhere. And common humanity does win out. It's just that... We're not in the same room. Exactly. And we're now being fed the means to display our initial prejudice. To walk this back very slightly... I about I used to love TED Talks. Do you like a good I TED Talk? I love a TED Talk. I don't Bring like it. them. I don't like them. No. I don't like them. Somebody schooled me on TED Talks, and I forget who it was. It was about three years ago. 
And I just thought TED Talks were the most amazing thing where somebody spoke for 18 minutes on a topic and I felt informed and that their view on how to write this problem was obviously right because they'd sat down and thought about it. I can't remember where I saw this, and some and some, but somebody wrote, "I hate TED Talks. They oversimplify complex issues. It is the glorification of one person with their view who can just fix any problem because they've sat down and thought about it, not worrying about the complexities of dealing with humanity, dealing with governments, dealing with finance, etc., etc." And I went. Fuck me, you're right. <laughs> right. And, it, and basically, it's the same thing with Twitter, but just without the outrage. Yeah. Right. We have in our Western culture, which an over-reliance on the unicorn view. You know, the businessman made good in America. Hmm. Or somebody's come up with a, with a great idea. And that's not to say that their great idea is not a great idea. Right. But if all of those TED Talks, if all those people doing them were so bloody clever, there'd be no problems left in the world. We would have solved world hunger. TED Talks actually prove that the world is a complicated place. And actually what we need to do is to start to venerate people who work really hard with others that come up with solutions together and not think that there are great ideas just spouting out of just one person on their own who sucks you into a vision that the world is fundamentally a simple place and they've thought about it on their own and by by their own intellectual rigour have come up with the solution. If it was two people (laughs) with differing views and then coming together and doing a 30, what, six-minute TED Talk, fine. Right. I never listen to TED Talks anymore. That's a yeah. real revelation for me. Um, Go. I, I'm going to build on that, actually, because so I, I think what I was realizing while you're talking, which I, I think is really good and interesting, is the format of a TED Talk is the sitcom format, right? Mm. In the sense of it's it's a good story, like a 30 minutes or less story, probably 20 minutes is the typical mm. length of a sitcom once you add the commercials in. Mm-hmm. 30 minute story that takes you on a journey. It has highs and lows, but at the end, it rounds up into a a tidy moral the like you see timmy last he saved the children from the well because <laughs> xyz happened so yeah. now we've learned a lesson and all we, we all get to go away and we all get to feel better about ourselves um that's the format of a ted talk but what you were talking about i mean i think if you added a second person then you'd have a debate i don't like debates i'm fed up with debates this is my thing mm. um because and i think I, and it's something I've only just started, like I started realizing this about a year ago where I was like, I have this whole idea in my head for where I want to do like an undebate or like I even had an idea for a podcast I want to do called like no debate. Because I think that there's a there's a thing about human psychology and the way it works, which scares mm-hmm. me. And there's a lot of evidence for this. If you get someone to express a weekly held opinion they instantly hold that opinion more strongly. And the more arguments you ask them to come up with for their opinion, the more strongly they hold it, even if they didn't hold it very strongly at the, at the beginning, which means when you challenge someone's opinion, they are more likely to convince themselves of their own view than they are to be persuaded by yours. Debates are a terribly ineffective way of actually... You know, it actually wasn't a debate. That, that I was talking about, though I appreciate why you might think that it's consensus building yeah. 
which is not a sexy thing uh, <laughs> to admit, right? And it's committees. Yeah. The true strength of any society is committees. It's not one great man with a great idea. And as somebody who loves history, I, I love a bit of Napoleon. I love a little bit of Frederick the Great. I love Toussaint L'Overture. I love all these great men that did swashbuckling deeds and led nations and Martin Luther King. Like, a, a really lazy look at civil rights in the 1960s. You just think, Martin Luther King, it was all about him, and he was just really smart, and he was just really quite eloquent. But of course, you do a proper reading, and... It was a basically, movement. It was a movement. Movements aren't sexy put your martin luther king up doing a ted talk he'll win everybody over but actually the strength of our societies are people of slightly differing views coming together in committees and sorting shit out and i think it's it's because of necessity right i think the the need to work together with other people has been a driver of finding consensus in the past and and I think what I was trying to get at earlier was mm. it feels like we don't we're physically not together in the same space. There's a lot of in America certainly there's a lot of data about demographic sorting, which means basically just you know liberals live near liberals and conservatives live near, live near conservatives. But also we don't even need to leave our houses anymore too much to get the things we need. We don't talk to people in shops. We don't we drive our, in America we drive our cars to somewhere. We we park we get out. We don't walk down the street. Isn't the kind of interaction and day-to-day need to work together that allows for consensus to form? A friend of mine who grew up in uh, in Minnesota, like he has a great explanation for the prairie mm-hmm. populism that I was talking about earlier. He goes, if you're in Michigan and your car breaks down by the side of the road in the middle of winter, whoever comes down that highway is going to stop and help you because if they don't, you'll die. <laughs> Like you, you, you just can't survive it. Like the, the weather will kill you. It is too cold and people know it. You'll die instantly. And on the prairie, that's what you had to happen. It, like you either helped the people or they were going to die. So you had to reckon with your morality and decide we're either going to work together or none of us are going to get out of this alive. And I kind of feel like it would be better for us if we had to work together a little bit more. If we, if we, if we had to be neighbors in the, in the true sense of the word, if we had to work and live alongside of each other and, and force each other to um, not just have conversations, but actually achieve things together, build communities. Well, that's the reason why the commons in the old fashioned usage of the word is really important. And that's what the right, and right populists have successfully done is to break down the commons to say that the mainstream media, what they're telling you isn't the common truth. Uh, the, these facts are not common facts. Yeah. So we can dispense with them. So if we don't have a well that we all come to, whether it's for water or for information, if you can say that that one is poisoned somehow, yeah. then committees society then breaks down we all fundamentally need to agree that um, a common set of rules and facts and then we can then disagree with how you interpret them and how you implement them but you need to fundamentally basically believe that let's say the russian government meddled in the u.s elections your president does not believe that even though his intel chiefs are telling him that yeah there are basic facts 
about uh, climate change. There are basic economic forecasts about the ramifications of Brexit. The efficacy of vaccines. I mean, we've got a measles outbreak because we can't all agree on basic scientific facts that have saved millions of lives. And the interesting thing is about the measles thing is that it's actually left-leaning parents that are um, throwing away conventional science. It's it's the one area where it gets thrown on its head. It's always the right who are conspiracy theorists and don't believe in, you know, well-established facts. But it's actually left-leaning parents in that regard. Oh, there are a few other areas where the left is conspiratorial in its mindset. I remember the George W. Bush years and and you would get in any meeting I would go to of leftists sooner or later, somebody is going to say that 9-11 was an inside job. That's still out there. There's all this, there's a lot of, there's conspiracy. There's crazy shit. But to our credit, Democrats did not elect the person who led any of our crazy conspiracy theories. That's where mm. I think we went out. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Class. Class. I think America does have class, very obviously. And I was always really shocked... Maybe surprise is, 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 the, is a better word. I was, I was always really marked how in the last 20 years, American politicians have never talked about the working class. They've always talked about middle class Americans. It's only in, since, since the rise of Trump, really, that left-leaning politicians will now talk about working class Americans and middle class Americans. What you have in this country is definitely a more smooth elevator in terms of people who are very obviously, by any definition, working class, and then stepping up through maybe doing zero-hours contract jobs in the US, working in a convenience store, doing two or three jobs, then stepping up, stepping up, stepping up, and then truly economically becoming middle class. Whereas in the UK... Um, our class badges are worn much more starkly in terms of the way that we speak 
and less so now but the clothes that we wear you still can yeah. denote somebody as working class because of, because, of, because of what they're wearing but you do have class in this country it's just that um the degrees of difference are less discuss Oh my goodness. So class in Britain confused the shit out of me when I first moved here. I have to tell you, because not that, not that I was one of these people who believed that America was a classless society. I always knew that it was not. What mm. confused me when I first moved to Britain and for years afterwards, and to this day, sometimes I still can't figure out what class someone is because in Britain, class is not about how much money you make. It's about how it's about what your dad or mom did for a living where you come from, where you grew up. It's now I have to say part of it is you need to be able to interpret the accents and I am not good at navigating the different class-based mm-hmm. regional accents. But I kept having conversations with people that would be something like this. Me, um, hi, I'm Amer- I'm Karen, I'm from American blah blah blah. You. Oh yeah, hi, I'm uh, I'm a PhD student. I'm um, you know, I I own my own flat in Islington, this, that, the other. And I'm going, okay, okay, okay. And I'm working class. Sorry, what? <laughs> you know, they'd say, they'd drop it in like, oh, well, you know, as a working class man. And I'd be like, you, you're, you're not like, what does that even mean? <laughs> you're, you're clearly, you know, what I would call an educated elite, your own, your own property, you've worked in, but in their minds, class was not about what they'd accomplished. It's about what they'd come from. And I think in America, class very much exists, but I think a lot of it is more about where you are right now. Does, mm-hmm. does that seem like a fair assessment to you? Yeah. If I put the, the US just one side for now, in the 1970s, it was very clear what class you were, and it was true. None of this self-identifying as something because there's an inverted snobbery, which is kind of what you're talking about there. But when I was a little kid in the 1970s, um, I believed that everybody was was working class. I saw middle-class people on TV, but they only survived on TV. Everybody that I knew, their dads did a blue-collar job. My dad was a bus driver. We went off to the seaside for our holidays. No such thing as flying away to ski. My parents dipped their toe into a little bit of uh, middle-classdom by sending me to the library every Saturday to get a book. Mm -hmm. That's as far as it went. In the 1980s, what... What Thatcher did by um, selling off the council houses and deregulating financial services was that a certain element of working class people could um, have um, access to relatively easy money, buy their own homes, etc., etc. And and funnily enough, my parents were working class but owned their own home. So Mm -hmm. we we didn't live on, on a council estate in social housing or anything like that. But in the 1980s, because of Thatcher and Thatcherism, the, the, the bounds of what class you were became confused. So there was this lower middle class, upper working class mulch, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which there never had been before. And um, people started moving around the United Kingdom much more than they ever did beforehand. Norbert Tebbit, get on your bike to go to work. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's always been a class component to do with... Um, the strict stratification of UK culture based on centuries-old aristocracy, etc. So, and that echo is still there in the, the way that people speak. And they're trying to be somewhat egalitarian in terms of speech. The signifiers of their class are still there in the way that they dress, but it's much 
less coded than it used to be. No one's walking around in in a pinstripe suit and a bowler hat anymore. See, I would but, translate that as mm-hmm. you Americanized. Because in America, where I come from, in the culture I grew up in, everybody defined themselves as middle class. Like, middle class was the huge But you know what, you're swag. wrong. You're wrong. Because you're talking about white America. That black America wanted to be middle class, but saw itself as working class. And you had whole swathes of popular Polish immigrants in Chicago or people in Detroit who were white that saw themselves as working class. They wanted sure. to be middle class and to get out of the city into the suburbs. But you're talking about a very particular strata of white America uh, who, who see themselves as, in inverted commas, American who always saw themselves as middle class. Race plays a lot of the role in America that class plays in the, in Britain, much to our detriment, I think. And it's uh, it, it's true. And it has been true for a long time. And I think one of the things that people felt inspired about with Obama's presidency was the hope that that might change, the hope that actually there has been for a long time a kind of thriving black middle class emerging. I was talking to Emma Burnell on my podcast earlier today, and she was saying the Obamas kind of felt like the Cosby show, right? It was like, here is a vision for aspirational African-American family that gets away from this world in which there was no, that race and class were synonymous and that you could never strive and never, never achieve if you were in this direction. I don't know. I think it's too simple because the intersection of race and class here in Britain is also complicated. For me, as, as I said before, in my last answer, I grew up in a working class, upper working class, but, an, but a working class bit of Birmingham. With that as my view out into the world and it's informed my politics ever since and I know now that I'm anything but working class economically there are going to be people who are working class that probably earn more than me but it's to do with aspiration now and, uh, and my lived experience is, is, is very different from that but the my lived experience and this is where you, you have to kind of say your lived experience because I know there's going to be many black people people of colour in the United Kingdom will actually disagree with what, what, with what I'm about to say. Or at least we'll have a slightly different take on it. Yep. My identity of being English has never been challenged by a white working class person. And that's going to be different for, for other black people. So I'm not saying I'm giving a universal truth. The times when I have been questioned as to why I call myself English by somebody who is English is actually being a middle-class person. Metropolitan England is disproportionately racially diverse. The population, the ethnic population of the United Kingdom, considering I've written articles on this, I should really remember off the top of my head. I'm going to say it's, 30, <laughs> going to say it's 13%. There's yeah. 65 million people in the country. There's more than 6 point something or another million people of colour, right, in the United Kingdom. The population of England is is about 55 million. Literally all of that, all of the minorities within the United Kingdom live in England. And then when you strip it down, they live in London, Birmingham, Leicester, Leeds, Bristol, and to a small proportion, Manchester and Liverpool. When you look at all where all the ethnic minorities actually are in the United Kingdom, they're all in England. There's none in Northern Ireland. There's a few in a few in 
in Cardiff, there's a few in Glasgow, and there's a few in Edinburgh. But fundamentally, it's England, and it's about seven cities within England. With the exception of, let's say, Leicester and places like Southall, which have large Indian middle-class populations, they live and sit cheek by jowl, as they did traditionally with white working-class English people. There is a culture which has grown up in places like Birmingham, which are very tolerant of people who are different skin colours. You can be black and you can be white, but, you sh- but there is a, a lingua franca of music and of a certain culture. This question of identity in Britain and race and class is incredibly complex, but it's newly complex. We don't mm-hmm. have the 300 years worth of Jim Crow laws and, uh, and, and slavery on British shores. It, it's something which is malleable and people are still yeah. making up the rules as we go along. It's not foundational and, the way it is in the US. No. I mean- and, and also, this is the last point about this, my experience if I've grown up with Pakistani parents would be very different from what I've said. Yeah. You know, that Pakistani boys and girls growing up in somewhere like Small Heath in Birmingham, which is 90% Pakistani, they're going to have a completely different view on being accepted into wider English culture than me being black. And there's no such thing as a black neighbourhood in the United Kingdom anymore, in England anymore. Used to be Brixton, used to be Handsworth, but those it's become so diffuse now. So it's an incredibly complex picture, but there's no such thing as a black Britain, is my last point. There are black and brown English people. I think that's a really insightful take and that matches, again, we can only talk about our lived experience. My lived experience was growing up in the northeast of the United States, which is very liberally minded and also very white, right? So I didn't see a lot of black people growing up. Um, And I went to university uh, in Washington, D.C., partly because as I wrote specifically on my application form, I wanted to go to someplace more diverse, um, by which I, I kind of naively thought, you know, great, I'll go and I'll, I'll meet people from all different backgrounds and cultures. And cause I have this kind of lovely multicultural open society. And I kind of got to DC and it was like, oh, all these black people have not been sitting around waiting for me to come and be their friend. Like they have their own, like, like the, 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 the university that I went to, they had a, a significant African American uh, population in there. Um, but they were mostly, and because there was, the way it worked academic, the, uh, financially was that if you were a DC resident, you got reduced tuition. So they were mostly locals and they had their own networks, their own friends. And there was not a lot of integration there um, between kind of the different communities. It was much easier to get to, for me to make friends or meet people from different immigrant communities. I met lots of people um, from kind of Hispanic backgrounds, etc. But when I came to Britain, my experience, again, only my lived experience, was that there was more natural integration across mm. just fundamentally. It was just easier to meet people from the Black community, just better integration. It was less of an issue. And I was fascinated by that and by the ways in which 
the cultures seemed less segregated and yet people seemed very segregated on class. It felt very much like there was a point of conversation at which people would dissect themselves into whether you have a working class identity or whether you have a middle class identity. Whereas in my, as you quite rightly point out, in my culture in Northeastern America, um, a sort of very waspy culture that I came from, although, you know, my, my family are on my father's side, they're truck drivers and postal workers, you know, working class people. We don't really identify that way. We all identified as middle class. Everybody identifies as middle class in, in that culture because that's our cultural norm. And my father, when he did really well and he made a success of his business, still identified as middle class, the same as he did when he grew up as the son of a truck driver. Never did he describe himself as working class and never would he. I think that is an apt point for us to uh, maybe put on pause, not to end, but to put on pause our discussions of the differences and the similarities between our two countries. What do you reckon? I think that's a good place to start, but it's been really interesting talking to you, Royfield. Likewise. I was going to say, of course, it's interesting talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) So, Royfield, for all of my listeners who would like to find your podcast and listen to it again, tell us about it. What's it called? It's called Mid-Atlantic and it comes out uh, fortnightly, which actually (laughs) I didn't realise that Americans don't use the expression fortnight. Every few weeks. Bi-weekly. I had an excruciating conversation with somebody two weeks after I got here for the first time and I said this thing comes out fortnightly they said what I went fortnightly I went what fortnightly <laughs> they went what does that even mean I thought I thought this man was an imbecile I was like I didn't realize you do not use that expression so and what I do is I have one pundit who's based in the states another one who's uh, based in the UK and we talk about an issue which is UK based and US based and we try and understand it from both both perspectives and see what the common ads commonalities it's not incredibly too different from what we've done today but it's a very kind of different in, in, in format so to speak so it's called mid-atlantic and it comes out bi-weekly and my podcast is called primarily 2020 it is focused on the democratic primary and the politics and personalities and policies that come out of that if that makes it sound like it's a narrow political podcast it's not we explore as we have done today a wide range of issues so we've done episodes on climate change we've had a think about immigration we've um we've explored kind of issues around identity and american mythology and what we believe being an american is for me it's a it's a way of exploring kind of the the vast tranche of issues and conversations that we as a party need to have not just to end the Trump era, but actually to to rebuild, because America needs to be rebuilt almost from the ground up, I think, politically, to rebuild the America that, that we think is needed. And I, I think we want to be part of that conversation. So check us out. We uh, I post an episode every Friday. So it is a weekly, not fortnightly podcast. Can I just say two things? I love Mayor Pete. Like, how <laughs> smart is that guy? It's like, oh my God, it, that man is no perfect with every answer he gives. Yeah, uh, I've got the hots for Mayor Pete. He's and, super cute. <laughs> oh my God, that man is so clever. And and also, can I say, if you're going to rebuild America, are you rebuilding America to make it great again? <laughs> well, what you might ask is, when was the last time we were great? Hmm. What is what is this greatness? I mean, I think you know. Again, it, it's one of these things you said to me earlier. Well, that's you know, that's that was your culture. America was a great country for people like myself for much of the time it was around, but we were very disappointing for 
immigrants, for Black people, for Native Americans, for most of our history. I dare to dream of America, an America that can be great for everyone. Next episode we do together, it will be Great Britain and Great America. I love it. I love it. Fantastic. Let's do it. You take care. Take care, Rodfield. Lovely to speak to you. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.